This morning, having finished Jonah chapter 4 last week, we're going to do a quick study that's really going to be a setup. You're being set up, I'm telling you ahead of time. What this uh, passage that we're going to study this morning, as you turn to Psalms, look for Psalm 85. As we do this study in Psalm 85, it's really a setup for next week. Not that this is a waste, but it really builds the understanding and the expectation in us for Pentecost, which is next Sunday, uh, May 31st. And so we'll be studying in Acts chapter 2 next week, but I really felt like this was a good message to share and to encourage the church to be looking forward to uh, an event that we celebrate as being the coming of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit on the apostles after the ascension of Christ. And so I want to encourage you guys as we look at this to be preparing your hearts because it's not like that's a magical day on the calendar. It's not like this is the only day the Holy Spirit pours out. So everyone gear up on May 31st. Make sure your heart's extra empty because the Lord's going to fill it. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. You can't predict or put God in a box like that. But in celebration of what he's done, I want us to come with an expectation as we just sang in that song that he can do it again. That he can pour out his spirit fresh again. And it's my desire that coming through a season of pandemic and quarantine and limitation, that the church would be in a place where they are fasting, where they're praying, and they're looking to God, just like the apostles were, to pour out the Spirit on them. And that he would do that in a way that we haven't seen. Honestly, in my heart, I want to see it happen in a way we haven't seen in millennia. I want to see it happen like we have not seen it happen since Pentecost. When Peter preaches an amazing sermon, excuse me, and the Lord just works powerfully. And so I want to see people get saved in mass quantity on May 31st. And I don't know how that's going to work, but it's my prayer. So I want to encourage you guys, as we um, look at this text, really see this as preparation for our hearts going into that next week. So here in Psalm 85, we're going to be talking about revival. And revival is a fun word to unleash on any Christian gathering. Um, When you say revival in a Christian gathering, you usually get a number of responses. You're bound to get some hallelujahs or some amens from one group of people in the room, depending on if you have a pretty wide variety of um, personalities. And then the other side of the room, you're going to get people who are looking at the people yelling hallelujah and amen and think extremists. Um, And so it's fun to kind of talk about revival and what it means to the church not just what it means to people who like to, whoop, you know, get excited. I'm a very excitable person. Um, I probably lean more Pentecostal than most people I know. Um, but, but here's the thing. Whether you are really hyperactive in worship or where you're really quiet and reserved, we all want to see revival happen. We all want to see the spirit be poured out. And, and here's what revival simply means. And this is why we all want to see it happen. It means an improvement in the condition or strength of something, something, something. That's an interesting word. It means improvement in the condition or strength of something. Why is that important? We're talking about the Holy Spirit. When we talk about revival, we talk about a resurgence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And that's important because we want to see spiritual renewal. We want to see seasons of refreshment come as the Holy Spirit pours out fresh. It's not that the Spirit has not been in us. It's not that we're not indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We know that we are. That's our seal of, of, of God's work in our lives, of, the, of Christ saving us. The Holy Spirit being inside of us is the seal unto that day when we actually see him face to face. But we see very clearly throughout Scripture there are specific times where the Holy Spirit is poured out in a special way. 
And so when we ask God to do this, we want to see the spirit work. And here's something that we'll talk about next week that I just want to, I think it's important to insert here. This is not something that we control. It's something that we call for. It's not something that we have the ability to throw a switch and begin. It's something that we ask God to do. It's something that we seek for him to do. I think a lot of times we want to see the Holy Spirit work. We're trying to find the switch on the wall that turns it on. You know, we have home group here in my house and people will wander. I'll be like, can you turn the light on, you know, before we start our Bible study time after worship? And, you know, the wrong switches. No, the other switch, that switch. No, this switch. No, that switch. And they're throwing the wrong switches and fans are turning on and people are falling out of chairs. So what's interesting is that oftentimes we feel like we have to set the right mood for the Holy Spirit to work. All that we see the apostles doing is being gathered in one place together for a common purpose. And so if we gather here, I believe even online, we have gathered together to seek the face of God for spiritual renewal to come. He can do that whenever he wants. We're going to talk about some things that could be stopping him from working. And it's not because God is limited. It's because God waits for us to be in the place of heart and of mind to be ready to work. And I want to encourage us to ready ourselves for the Lord to work through us in a fresh way. As believers speak of revival as a time of spiritual renewal, and we should desire that for ourselves and for our world, what happens in the world when the spirit gets poured out through the church is powerful. We want to see this happen um, because we ourselves are revived from lethargy and complacency. And we want to see it happen for the world's sake, because in the greatest sense of all, we want to see people be revived from the dead. We want to see people become, see people become saved. And we often think of revival as something that we long to see God do, as if he's waiting to bring spiritual renewal until a later date, because he's not really in the mood for it right now. Now, this is something that I think is interesting. I, I do believe God is working right now. The question that I want to ask us, and this is really an open-ended question. It's not me presupposing anything. Could God be waiting right now to pour out his spirit until we are ready? Could it be that it's our fault that revival's tearing at this season? And I'm not even saying that this could be a sin issue. It certainly could, but I'm saying it in this sense. Could revival be waiting because we aren't asking for it? Because we're not seeking for it. Because we're not longing for God to do it. And we're not spending time in prayer and fasting, seeking for him to do these things. That fire remains at a smoldering state. I believe many times because we have not thrown the accelerant on it. The fire and the source is God, but how, how much are we investing in revival? How much are we looking for God to pour out his spirit again? My prayer for our time in this text this morning is that this is where those, those little sparks, that little flame in our heart begins to grow. It begins to rage up and, and burn hot and bright again. This corporate lament of Psalm 85 is meant for group settings. It's meant for group involvement. It contains, I believe, a prophetic element focusing on hope and God's future help. Um, And the reason I say that is because as the people would be saying this, for whatever, and and most likely this is post-exilic Israel, um, when this was written, there's some different trains of thought, but generally speaking, that's probably the situation here. Um, The time frame is debated a bit, but um, 
what I believe that we see here is a forecasting, a looking forward to, we know God will fulfill, we know God will do this, and a hopefulness in what he will do. Therefore, as we read this in our hearts as a church, as we repeat these words and read them, we can have that same expectation of future fulfillment, of future God fulfilling this, because we know that there's some things here that we want to see God do now. And so as Israel is speaking this forward over most likely post-exilic existence there in Jerusalem and in a land which was difficult, as they were looking forward to that, we look forward to God doing something here. And so many of these words should echo in our own hearts. Many of these attitudes and this um, approach to the Lord should echo in our own hearts. So the message is really clear here in Psalm 85. God is perfectly just, perfectly loving, and the combination of these two aspects of his character are vital for us to recognize so that we have a steadfast hope of revival and restoration. I'll say that again. God is perfectly just and perfectly loving. And when we hold fast to that, that God has both of these things in his character and many more characteristics, but when we recognize that God is both, that he is just, he is loving, he is holy, he is gracious, he is righteous, he is merciful. When we recognize these aspects about God, it gives us a hope for revival and restoration again. We look forward to that, ultimately when Christ returns. But right now, perhaps the pouring out of the Spirit again, perhaps another revival for our time. So when we look at this psalm, I want to call out four sections that we're going to study here. The first section is remembering God. The second section is requesting from God. The third section is waiting for God. And the fourth section is the revelation of God, or God reveals himself, if you will. So let's look at this. We'll break it down. The very first section, as we talk about remembering God, remembering who he is, what he's done, let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. And Psalm 85 reads this way. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. Selah, or most likely pause and reflect. You withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. Did you notice something about that first three verse section as we talk about remembering God? All of this is past tense. All of this is things he's done in the past. Now notice this. It's not just that, but the psalmist begins by looking back and I want you to, to focus your attention on something that's a layer deeper, even more vital. Is the psalmist focusing on hardship? You showed favor. You restored. You forgave. You covered. You withdrew. You turned. All of these things are not focusing on failure. All of these things are focusing on what God did in the positive light. He's not focusing on the hardship. The psalmist is not focusing on the sins that were committed. Now, hold on a second. Were there hardships? Yeah, absolutely. Were there sins committed? Yeah, hence the hardship. I mean, like, and it's not that hardship's always connected to sin, but much of the story of the nation of Israel is them getting into trouble because of disobedience to God. Hardship came, read the book of Judges. Hardship comes because they rejected God and worshiped idols. So there was hardship. There was sin. But the psalmist isn't focusing on that. Should there be confession of sin? Yes, absolutely. But we're not to dwell on those past sins. 
We're not to dwell on those things and let them come back and consume us and control us and tempt us again. We're to be free of that in Christ. There needs to be confession of sin, but we're not to dwell on it. We confess, we repent, he's faithful and just to forgive us, and then we go forwards, not backwards. We go forward from there. There should be a steady forward progress in the Christian walk. It's not a it's not called a Christian backslide. You know, backsliding is bad. If you're really like, yeah, I'm so backslidden, it's great. You'll never hear that in context that way, like totally backsliding. Like that's not like to be touted or talked about positively in Christian circles anywhere. If it's like, yeah, our church is so backslidden. You never hear that. You want a church going forward that's maturing and growing and being used by God. And God doesn't want us dwelling on our past sin. We are to learn from that and to move forward into a newness of life. All the while... As we do that, remembering that God, all that God has done within our hearts with thankfulness and joy. How hard is it to be thankful and joyful when you're thinking about past sin? Maybe if we think about, wow, as a real wreck, but now. But did you notice that qualifier? But now. If you focus on that and you're not focusing on the now, if you're looking backwards all the time, looking at your sin, do you realize that that will naturally drag you down? That will drag you down and it will demoralize your demeanor. But if you are looking at the hope that you have right now, the joy that you have right now, the thankfulness that flows from a heart that recognizes that we've been saved, I want you to take note of what God has recognized as doing here. Let's just look at what the psalmist does. He says he showed favor. He restored. He forgave. He covered. He withdrew his wrath. He turned from his anger. All of these things are showing his people love and affection. Consider how God has done all these things, not only in scripture as you read about it here in the nation of Israel, because they can recognize this throughout their history, that God has been good when they didn't deserve it, that God loved them when they didn't deserve, that God forgave even though they didn't deserve forgiveness. But I want you to think about the characteristics we've seen of God in our own lives as well. How many of us did he forgive of heinous sin? How many of us is he being gracious and merciful towards right now? Maybe in sin, maybe struggling with sin, maybe having a difficult time moving forward. And God continues to draw us and to work in our lives. Are these the attitudes and actions that we choose to meditate upon or we look back? Are we focusing on the wrong things? Are we thinking about all of the things, the favor and the faithfulness and the forgiveness and the covering, is that what we think about? Is that what we let dominate our thoughts? Or are we looking at our sin and are we condemning ourselves? God is not condemning those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not biblical. There's no condemnation to those from Christ. So if you are feeling condemned for past sin, that's not God. That's the enemy. I'll say that again. Listen. If you are feeling condemned for past sin, that is not God. That's the work of the enemy, or that's you bringing sin back into your heart again. You can be free of all of that. Jesus set you free from it. We are to remember all that he has done, and then as that remembrance sheds light on the current, we ask him to intervene. Then we ask him to do 
in our lives. So notice the stages that I mentioned before, the four different sections here. First, we remember God. We remember what he has done. And we see all the goodness. Then we ask. We remember and then we remember. God is gracious. God is good. God is merciful. He is all these things. I can go to him. I can talk to him. I can ask him. Our next response after remembering God is the next section of this psalm, to request of him. And I wonder how many of us dwell too much on the past, allow that condemnation and despair to sink in, and we never reach the point of requesting because we don't see the point. How many of you have stopped asking God for something because what's the point? Why would he listen to me? Why would God even consider me? Why would God change anything? It's been this way for decades. I think that many times we can get caught in that kind of thinking. And let me say this very lovingly. That's unbiblical. We are to come to God with everything. Nothing cuts us off from his presence except that which we put in that place. Nothing's going to separate you from God unless you bring it with you. Nothing's going to keep you from talking to him unless you stop talking. Unless you stop coming forward to him. Remember what God has done. And then the next section, beginning in verse 4, request. Here's what our cry should be. This is what the, the nation of Israel cries out to the Lord. Verse 4, return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Now we're talking in the present. Now, after remembering, they're talking about where they're at right now. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. You definitely feel the song, right? Because psalms, songs, poems. You definitely feel the poetic and the, the song um, kind of coming out of people as they, as they say this. What a beautiful, in a lot of ways, it's a prayer. What a beautiful prayer to have on our lips whenever our time of contemplation, as we think about God's great works, as it reveals his goodness and his great works, Lord, return to me again. Lord, show me that again. Reveal your goodness to me again. There is nothing wrong with asking God to, to work in your life fresh. It's not selfish unless you're selfishly motivated. I'll qualify that. It's not like, Lord, work in my life again so that I have all the money for that new vehicle. That's not what he's talking about. I mean, maybe God wants that for you, but, but here's, here's my point in this. If you are selfishly motivated because you want something that you should not have, that's, that's separate. But when we're talking about this, remembering the goodness of God in your life and looking at the things that he's done, you should be asking him to do more because that glorifies him. That brings glory to him. You should be desiring that and wanting that. And there's nothing wrong with asking him for it. We should never cease to ask. You know, James writes a whole section in his letter about this. You don't receive because you don't ask. And he says, when you do ask, you ask amiss to spend on your own desires. So he says, make sure your heart is right and don't cease to ask God. Talk to him. Ask him for things. Lord, return to me again. Restore me again. You've restored me before. You've used me before. Do it again. As I was working on this message, I had already planned to do that song. That song was already in the set. And I was like, wow. Coincidence? No. Spirit. It's God. Like God was like, you need to sing this song. Because the idea, I wanted that to be in, in, in our minds for some reason. And it was because it connected to the text. 
We want to see God work again. We want to see him do things fresh. How amazing is it that you can ask God to abandon his displeasure for us? To ask God and to plead to his grace. Because just as much as he is holiness and righteousness and justice, he is also grace, mercy, and love. And so we can call it, it's not like you're appealing to two different sides of his personality. In Christ, he has made grace, peace, love, mercy, all those things available. The ESV translate this word, displeasure, as indignation. And that's an interesting thought process because indignation is anger that is aroused by something unjust. Now hold up a second. God's anger is never inappropriate. So if his anger is aroused, if it's, if his anger is in play, that means something unjust has happened. Meaning that God has every right to be angry with us, but we're requesting his mercy and grace instead of righteous judgment. We're claiming the cleansing of the cross. We're simply saying we cry out on behalf of who Jesus makes us. It gives us access. It gives us a point of connection with God. The psalmist makes pleas based upon the goodness of God towards his people, Israel. We make pleas to God based on the goodness of God towards the church. Towards the, our, not, not our church, the big church, those who are in Christ. We go to God and we have access to him because of Christ and we can ask for mercy and grace in a time of need. As you look at verses five through six, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice over you? What right do we have to ask God these things? What right do I have on my own to ask I don't have any right. But should we still ask? Yes, because of Jesus. Because of who Christ has made us. Because we're a new creation. Me and my flesh, I have no right to ask. Me as a son of God, I'd be foolish not to. I'd be foolish not to ask him for these things because we know his character. A picture of the character of God that, that is so hard for me to not think of right off the bat whenever I think about his heart for people. Um, almost immediately, I think of how God, when we talk about God's heart for people, I'll think of um, Exodus 34, where God describes himself to Moses, declares himself to Moses. Um, but another passage is Ezekiel 18. In Ezekiel 18, verses 21 through 23, um, says this, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. This is why we request after remembering who God is, after reading his word and seeing what he's done and remembering in our own lives what he's done, this is why we come and we ask him because God wants to save people. He wants to use people for good. He wants to bless people. God is not looking for a reason, as we talked about last week, to squish you. He's looking for a reason to help. He's looking for a reason to save, to, to encourage and to build you up. The heart that's brought to repentance from sin. 
we cry out to God, revive us, restore us. And after making that request, and I, you know, I line these out at the beginning of the message, but as, as you think about this, we remember God, we request of God. Then something happens that we see in this, this psalm that's so clearly to see in the text. Then we wait upon the Lord. After making that request, we wait upon the Lord. This is where I feel like I spend a lot of my time. I don't feel like I hesitate to see God's goodness. I don't feel like I hesitate to ask God for things in, in many areas of my life. I feel like I sit in this waiting room a lot. And it's a good thing. This is not the waiting room with stale magazines. Like this is, this is the waiting of, uh, upon God that teaches us trust, that builds faith. Look at verse 8 and 9. I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near to those who fear him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Here is the expectation and the waiting for God to do, for waiting for God to work. Isn't it crazy how this is so clearly outlined in this psalm? You, you know, you remember God, you request from God, and now it's like, now wait upon the Lord. Now, I'll listen to what God will say. There is a great verse to memorize, and it's a longer verse than that. But that first line, I will listen to what God will say. If we had that mindset about us more often, I think that we would find quieter places and have fewer words. I want to encourage you, church, find quieter places with fewer words. Meaning that it's not a bad thing to request, but once you've made your request known to God, take the time to wait and to listen to what God will say. How many times do we not hear God speak because we won't let him get a word in? How many times does he want to speak to our minds, but we don't dial down the noise? I don't know about you guys. My house is a very loud place. There's a lot of noise in my home all the time. Every person here would agree with me. There's just a lot of noise, a lot of people. Do we intentionally, not just, I'm spiritually quiet before the Lord, good, but get physically quiet too. God gave us the physical realm to live in. So find physical places that are quiet. Find a place where you can listen to what God will say in response after you've remembered, after you've requested. Notice that taking the time to reflect on the goodness of God is important in verses 1 through 3. And now taking time to hear him speak after we've cried out is vital. Taking time to listen for him is vital. The prophet Habakkuk wrote this great visualization of attentive listening. In Habakkuk 2.1, it says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. Did you notice the weirdness of that statement? I will look out to see what he will say. Now, the picture is someone on a watch post or a watchtower looking for a response. But he's, he's dialing into this watchfulness is, is in listening. So he's tying together the eyes and the ears. I love this because it's like, it's almost like it's hard to describe. I'm listening hard. You know, like you're going to get a, you know, a hernia. If you're, if you're actually describing it in terms of like watching carefully, but with the ears, do we listen intently? You ever been in your house in the middle of the night and uh, something wakes you up and it's a creak somewhere in the house. Have you ever listened intently? You know, and everyone's snickering out because there are times, and especially in the middle of the night, like you could drop a toothpick on the floor and it will sound like a gun going off. Like I'm so dialed up, like any sound 
I'm grabbing that baseball bat. You know, like I just, you're all dialed up and you're, oh, do we listen? I, that's fear too. But I'm, I'm talking more about that attentive listening. Are we listening intently for God? Are we seeking after him to speak? Are we like, Lord, open the eyes of my ears, if that makes sense. You know, like may my ears be, I mean, you picture ears on a watch post. I mean, that's just weird. But if, if you think about, if you think about the tying the two together, are we watchful in listening? Are we attentive in listening? And he says this, I want to hear what you say to me. Now look at, look at this, look at the text again here in verses seven and eight. Let them Don't let them go back to foolish ways. As we listen for God, don't let us go back to where we were. Don't let us go back to the sins that we recognize he delivered us from in verses 1 through 3. It's something that I over and over encourage people to be very aware of. Don't go back. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to slavery and sin. Don't get drawn back into that garbage again. And when you see people doing it, call them out of it. You know, and I think of how in uh, Galatians chapter six, we're told to, if we see somebody who's in a sin, that we who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but we're to keep watch on ourselves so that we don't get tempted. If you realize that someone you're trying to help out of a sin is drawing you back into it and you're like, that's the past. Don't go back to foolish ways. Keep watch. Be aware. The enemy would love to have two for one. He would love to drag you into what this person you're trying to help is stuck in. It's important that we bear one another's burdens. It's the next verse. It's Galatians 6, 2. But we need to be careful that we're keeping watch on ourselves. Don't go back. Nothing brings concern and and, uh, spiritual ferocity out of me like seeing someone who has been delivered from something starting to look at it again. We have to look out for people who are getting drawn into that. We have to make sure we're not letting that happen to ourselves. At the end of verse 8, in other translations, this is translated, but let them not return. Let them not return. Now look at this in verse 8. It says this, I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faith ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. Other translations say, but let them not return to their foolish ways. I like those translations better because they fit with theology better. They fit with biblical theology about um, God. I think it's twofold. We don't want God to let us go back. We want him to stop us. But we also need to be willing participants in not going back as well. It's both. Are my ears open to hear God say no? And am I not willing to go as well? Am I on God's side with this? I think a lot of times we, talk, we, we look at things that we get caught up in. Like, why didn't God stop me? Well, you knew better. That was God stopping you. So he didn't remove the choice. He made you aware you knew better than that, yet you still went. That was God stopping you. You have to be a willing participant. The repentant sinner understands that the communication line between himself and God remains open so long as submission remains. Let me say that again. Please hear me. The repentant sinner understands that the communication line between himself and God remains open so long as submission remains. When we are in disobedience, we disrupt communication with God. Don't return return to foolish ways. And remember that his salvation is very near those who fear him. His saving power is present with those who fear him. And remember this, fear is not the, "Ah," we're talking about respectful obedience. 
Respectful obedience is this kind of fear. Remembrance, requesting, waiting. Those who fear God do all these with expectancy for the final statement in verse 9, that glory may dwell in our land. That glory may dwell in the land. So we do all of these things. We remember God. We request from God. We wait for God with an expectancy that he will do something, that he will work, and that glory will dwell in the land. This is what his people stood upon, and it's the same type of thing that we need to build our lives around. Remembering God, requesting God, waiting for God with expectancy. He's got to do something. God will do something. I don't have to manufacture it. I just got to be ready for it. And here's a warning. Here's a warning to to so many of us, especially in spiritual leadership, that want to manufacture or provide the right environment. God can use a phone on a stand here in a living room to bring spiritual revival. That's his job. That's God's thing. He just needs to find in us hearts that are ready. He needs to find in us remembrance, requesting, and, and waiting for him expectantly. That the eyes of our ears would be open, so to speak. And if someone just tuned in and didn't have the context, that would be the weirdest statement ever. But if you've been listening and watching, then it makes sense. So I, I just want to encourage us. This is not just speaking of restoration of Israel. When we read this in Psalm 85, this is salvation for those who trust in him. This is salvation for those who trust in the Lord. This is the return of our Savior and the restoration of his creation. We look forward to these things because we want to see his glory dwell here forever. When we talk about his glory dwelling in the land forever, we want to see Jesus return. We want to bring in the coming of Christ. And that's not for me to control, but boy, do I want to be a part of it. I want to play my role in that. We want to see the culmination of history. We want to see Christ return. Now we've read this already, but read it through the eyes of expectation. Read it through the eyes of expectation as you go back through Psalm 85. And as we continue forward, let's look at expectancy as we have remembered, requested, and waited for the Lord. Now the fourth aspect is verses 10 through 13, the revelation of God, or God shows. God comes forward, faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth. Righteousness will look down from heaven. Also, the Lord will provide what is good, and our land will yield its crops. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. While I see this as their longing and the revelation that they long for of God, I see this as something forthcoming. When you look at how this is described, the Lord providing what is good, the land yielding its crops. We may have seen God work in our time, but we have not seen the Lord do this to the fullest until Jesus comes, until the king is here. One of my favorite teachers expressed how frustrated he was that he didn't possess the language to describe these verses. And and it's funny because I felt I was feeling the same way. And as I went after study time and I read, you know, through different writings on, I was like, wow, I totally felt that way. I totally feel that way. And I'm going to try and do it justice. Like, and I think he did a wonderful job. Uh, Faithful love and truth will join together. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. The character and the nature of God will culminate here. Here in this place, God's love and truth meet here on earth. God has to punish sin. That's truth. 
He asked to punish sin. And God's love for us was so great that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. Jesus is where faithful love and truth meet. Jesus is the answer. When they were looking forward to this time, post-exilic Israel, they were waiting for Christ to come. We've seen him come. We're ready for him to come again. Because we recognize that the place where God's love and truth meet here on this earth, where God's righteousness and his grace, where his justice and his love meet, is in Christ. Jesus was the perfect personification of what that looks like. And he is alive today and coming again. Amen? That's what we're waiting for. The second statement speaks the same truth, just in a different way. Righteousness and peace will embrace each other. If you read the ESV or different verses, says they kiss each other. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. See, you know, CSB went a little easy on us here. It's like they just hug, you know. But you understand the point. Like they're embracing each other. This isn't like this isn't like a lesser version of it. Righteousness is the Hebrew word sedek, which means the right thing or what is honest. It's speaking of truth. It's the same statement as before. He's just using just different descriptives. Peace, shalom, is the other aspect. These two things embrace each other. The culmination of all who God is, his justice and his love, truthfulness and peace, blend together in perfect harmony in Christ Jesus. That is why Jesus is what we need. Because when we look back and we see the grace and the mercy, the favor and the pleasure and the the turning away of anger from God, we see Jesus. When we request of God, we're calling for Jesus. When we're waiting for God, we're waiting for Jesus. And when we see him, it will be Jesus who comes. Jesus is the scarlet thread that is interwoven throughout all of scripture. The story of redemption has been running since before time began. God knew this was coming. The answer to all of our issues is Christ. The culmination of all he is, of all God is, all his character is in Christ. If you long for justice, you long for Jesus. If you long for love that never fails, you long for Jesus. And when Jesus returns, look at verse 11. Truth will spring up from the earth. Righteousness will look down from heaven. Heaven and earth will come together. Also, the Lord will provide what is good, verse 12 says, and our land will yield its crops. From beneath and above, the truth and justice of God will both be planted and fed, and the world will produce a crop from the light and watering of Jesus. My perspective on this text is that not only the people of Israel were calling for the right thing post-exile, most likely, or at whatever point in their history this is written, if you want to debate about it, but let's say for sake of argument that this is post-exile and they're calling out for the Lord to bless them yet again. The kind of blessing that they're asking for is what, we're, what we will see in the end. At end times when, when Christ rules and reigns. What we're longing for is the restoration of this world. What we're longing for is for the end of Revelation. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a new heaven, a new earth, a redeemed body. This is our future. This is our hope. And we want to see the turning of the page into that final chapter of God's story that will never have an ending. You realize when that final page gets turned and we are in the closing chapter, that that story never ends. And that there is a point that looking off into infinite future, that those pages we don't have, those haven't been written Because we'll live them. We'll live those things out in eternity with Christ. That's the hope we're longing for. The thing that we're looking for 
is our future in Christ. It's a future of being in the glory of God. It'll be everything that our heart has ever desired culminated. And the sickness of sin never to return. That sounds really good. The sickness of sin being gone forever sounds really, really good. Last verse, verse 13, just as we close with this thought. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. It's all about him. It's all about God. It's vital for us to never forget that Jesus is coming, that our time is short. Our hope is a steadfast anchor for our soul because we know the day is coming when Jesus will return. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We're just waiting. He is not done using us. And the way we know that is because we are here and he is not. His spirit is in us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, is making intercession. But Jesus has not returned physically. And so we know that the church is on a mission still. What's the church to do? Same thing that Jesus told us to do at the end of Matthew. We are to go and make disciples. We are to go and preach the gospel. We are to be ambassadors for him until he comes back. That's our job. And what we need in order to do that is to be filled with the Spirit. So next week, on Pentecost, May 31st, we're going to cry out to the Lord to pour out his Spirit fresh again. We're going to ask the Lord to fill us again because if the church is still here and Jesus is still tarrying, then we need to be busy and we need him to fill us with his power to do it. And so with this passage as the backdrop for what we're going to look at next week, I just want to encourage you this week, take some time to pray. We have lots to pray about as a ministry, but be praying that the Lord pour out his spirit. More important than so many things that we consider important is the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church so that people will get saved. So that God will use us. That's more important than a building. We need a building. But it's not more important than the Holy Spirit being poured out. It's not more important than us being useful tools in his hands. So as we uh, close with some worship, I just want to encourage you guys to be praying about these things. To be considering these things. um, And prepare your heart. Remember the Lord. Ask him to work. Ask him for things in your life. Wait patiently for him. And he's coming. He will respond both to the situations we're in and ultimately Jesus will come back. Are we ready? Are we waiting? Let's pray together. God, as we just um, close and, and praise you and worship you, I ask that you would encourage us, God, to be seeking after you to not get caught up, Lord, in condemnation or looking at our past, struggling with old sin. The Lord submitted to you and thankful and joyful. Lord, that your anger and your wrath was turned away from us because of Jesus. So Lord, we ask that you work in our lives, provide for our needs, Give us vision. We wait for you, Lord, to work. The eyes of our ears are wide open, listening for anything that you might utter. And Lord, we can't wait for the day to see you. 
Give us a hunger to be close. We ask it in your name.